An astonishing number of women live with pain, be it monthly pain related to their menstrual cycles or something to do with chronic illnesses. Women are very, very good at dealing with pain and shutting up about it. Why is this? Why are we so reluctant to say, I'm hurting, I'm in physical pain, to make our doctors believe us, to force people to take our pain seriously? Why don't we carve out that space in which we can get proper treatment? Witch Hunt is a Guardian podcast that originated out of Me Too, and it looks at whether the movement has made any real difference to women's lives. This episode of Witch Hunt, recorded live at All About Women 2019, is hosted by journalist Gabrielle Jackson. We're here today a few days after International Women's Day, and in many of these sessions, we're considering what, if anything, has changed after Me Too. Undoubtedly, Me Too was a global phenomenon that has sparked the biggest debate about sexism and women's role in society since the 1970s. For me, and for many other women, I suspect, it has also been an intensely emotional experience because at the very root of Me Too is the knowledge that women have been telling these stories forever and half the world has not been listening. This inability to listen to women and believe their stories is rooted deep in our social conscience and underpins many of the structures that govern our society. In the episodes of Witch Hunt we've aired so far, we've looked at how this plays out for women at work when their complaints of sexual harassment are dismissed or disbelieved. In the justice system, where judges and juries find it so hard to believe when women have been raped. And we've looked at how women ourselves often find it hard to listen to other women and how this can leave women of colour, LGBTI people and women living with a disability feeling left out of feminist movements. Today, we're here to talk about how this works in healthcare. I have endometriosis, so this is really personal to me. And to me, this unwillingness to listen to women is no more evident than in women's pain. We live in a society that is really okay with women suffering. Because women go through pain in childbirth and some women have painful periods, we've been led to believe that pain is a woman's lot. And if she complains about it, well, there's something wrong with her. That's almost like complaining you're alive. What's the point? But we're never told that kidney stones are a natural state, are we? Recently, a man tried to explain to me how painful kidney stones are. It's like a man's labour pain, he said. I said, mate. <laughs> I have endometriosis, I've broken my back, and I've been run over by a train. Don't try to explain pain to me. He shut up. <laughs> Today, we're in the absurd position where 70% of people with chronic pain conditions are women, and 80% of pain drugs are tested on men and male mice. This is a huge improvement. Before 2016, it was almost 100% of pain research done on men and male rodents. How did we get here? Well, today we have four amazing women with us who will explain women's pain, the consequences of not believing women's accounts of their own health, and the transformation that happens when we do listen to them. We have Susan Evans, who's a gynaecologist, a pain physician, and founding director of the Pelvic Pain Foundation of Australia. Dr. Hannah Darlin is a professor of midwifery at the University of Western Sydney. Dr. Megan Williams is head of Indigenous Health Discipline at the Graduate School of Health at the University of Technology, Sydney, and a descendant of the Wiradjuri people of central New South Wales through her father's family and my colleague at The Guardian, Melissa Davey, who is an all-round great reporter and journalist. Welcome. Please join me in welcoming them. Um, Susan, so I'll start with you. Um, can you tell us how women's pelvic pain became one of the least research areas of medicine? It's, it's a wonderful question. How did it get this bad? How did women get so much disadvantage when it comes to pain? And I think that uh, societies often struggle with the pain that can't be seen. They, a lot of men's pain is things for which there's logical explanations, there's an injury to be seen, whereas women's pain tends to be pain that you can't obviously ascribe a cause to. 
So society is very good with things like broken bones. They all understand, they can see something, they look at it, they think, wow, that looks like it would hurt. Even if they've never experienced it themselves, they can imagine that they might experience it one day and that it would really hurt. That's what I would call a validated pain. And sympathy and support comes forward, there's good treatments available, and it often settles down, and there's no need for the person affected to feel stigma or problems or diminished because of that injury. Unfortunately for women with pelvic pain, which includes things like periods and endometriosis, that's what I would call an unvalidated pain. Nobody really has a really good handle on why it picks some women rather than others. There's no measurement for the severity of pain. There's nothing to see. And uh, one of the areas that I'm working on at the moment is the fact that the language that women use to describe their pelvic pain uses words and descriptors that haven't been well developed in healthcare and have, don't fit with the classical examples of pain. It's far too easy for the woman herself to be diminished and disbelieved and to feel embarrassed, stigmatised and like hiding her pain. And so much of this pain is, is hidden. These areas of finding solution, improving education and awareness are things that I work in every day, but it's coming from so far back. We have so far to catch up with and the vast unmet need in this area is just extraordinary. Um, it's really interesting because, you know, I said before I broke my back, I had a compound mm. fracture of my sacrum and no one doubted it. I got sympathy from every doctor, nurse, yes. friend, family. But last year I went to the emergency room with this terrible kind of, you know, ill-defined abdominal pain, which I'd yes. had for three days. And, um, you know, some people were a bit sympathetic at first and as soon as I said I had endo, the consultant just sent in a registrar to say, you should go and make an appointment with your gynaecologist, it's just endo, without even a physical exam. And I felt yes. so embarrassed and humiliated, like, yes. like a hypochondriac. Yeah, know. emergency departments have not really been friends of women with pelvic pain. And there's so many reasons for that. Uh, it is, women live with pain for most days. And usually it's when there's something or other, some trigger as to whether they actually brave the emergency department, mm. which is often what it is, as you found. Um, and, you know, the current situation isn't working for anybody. It's not working for women and it's not working for health practitioners because we don't have the wonderful solutions we need and we don't have the diagnostic ability to work out everything for them and provide effective solutions. And that's just dreadful. Mm. It has been so neglected. And it's often considered to be just too hard. You will probably put in the too hard basket, we don't have options to offer her, what can we do to sort this out for now, sort of, uh, so that really, to be truthful, she leaves and we can move on to something else that we have solutions for. Mm, yeah, it was really interesting because they gave me a referral to an outside clinic to yes. check for appendicitis. I said, I'm not an idiot. Yes. Like, if you were worried about that, you would have checked it here, I not know. sent me anywhere. Anyway, I've left there knowing all I do. I've spent the last year writing a book about women's health and women's pain, and I left that emergency department. I didn't want to tell anyone because I felt so ashamed. Mm. Um, Hannah, this kind of leads nicely onto your question. Um, do, you, do we listen to women and respect their choices? Look, I think as, as health professionals, we think we do and we try to. And the majority of health professionals go into the job because they're well-meaning and they seriously want to do a good job. Let me tell you, you don't choose to be a midwife to make millions. You probably don't choose to be a gynaecologist either to make millions. So we really, really do care. But we can always do better. And um, for 30 years, you know, I've been a midwife and uh, I've now researching heavily but still practicing and the last 10 years we've been really focusing on women who are increasingly avoiding our systems within Australia women who are choosing to have free births or high-risk home births uh, women who are saying I have been so traumatized by my birth experience I'm not going back into that system that created the trauma and what seems to come out again and again is lack of options so lack of options to meet all women's needs, but also the trauma from being talked to, disrespected, dismissed, ignored or coerced. And that is a, another kind of pain. This is the pain of 
trauma, and we're looking a lot at post of, of at PTSD. Um, and it's you know PTSD is what soldiers return from battlefield with. To have one in ten women now in some studies having PTSD following childbirth, I think is an absolutely horrifying situation. And yet, if a soldier returns from battlefield with PTSD, we say, you know, we're going to look after you, we're going to you know, put you on disability leave, we're going to give you counselling, etc. But we expect the women to return not only to the scene of the trauma that caused that in the first place, but to basically suck it up and put up with it. So when they make choices to say, well, actually, you were the source of our trauma, we're not coming back, we very much demonise and um, have fairly bad things to say about these women. So we've been researching what are the drivers and how can we get women to engage back into our system? We're writing a book this year called The Canary in the Coal Mine, because we really believe these women are telling us very important things to help us to improve our systems. So that's one part of the work. The other thing I want to do is tell a story. When I was working as a midwifery consultant at a hospital in New South Wales, I had an office that was really close to the antenatal clinic. So I was hearing all the women coming and going, and I was hearing the clerks interacting with the women. And I started to notice that the voices of the clerks were different to different women. And I thought, I wonder what's going on. And I used to pop my head out. And they were very rude and dismissive to certain women, women of dark skin, women who would wear veils, women who were not white, Australian, English-speaking, first-language women. And I was really, really horrified. And we had a situation where we had an Arabic women's clinic, and it was run on a Thursday afternoon. And the women wanted to see a male, uh, not, not see a male, they wanted to see a female. So they keep on waiting until the female was free. And this led to clinics spilling hours after time, women down corridors, women fainting on the floor, husbands getting really upset and storming up to administration. And so we brought the community in, and this is, I think, really critical, and we said, how can we do this better? Nobody had thought to do this. And the women told us, this is how you can do it better. We employed an, an Arabic-speaking midwife who cared for a majority of all of the women who were low risk, and then the female obstetrician who we then put on that day could see the women who had high risk. We reorganised the entire thing. Not only did that lead to very happy women, more um, Arabic women started coming to our clinic. We won first prize for quality in the, the area health service. Because we, and we, it costs no more money. We just simply move things around and listen to women. So for me, there's a great lesson. We, you know, as health professionals, we're really busy. We get into patterns, we get into habits. We, we keep on kind of keeping on. Mm. If we just stop and we actually, if we actually developed care from the woman outwards, mm. rather as the way it often is, from ourselves inwards. And I think this is just, it, it saves us time, it saves us angst, it makes us love our jobs. I tell you, everybody was really happy to go and work in antenatal clinic after this. So there, there, there are simple strategies, and if we listen to women, not only have they got brilliant ideas about how care can be better, but our lives as health professionals can be so improved. Mm. And I think um, I read a study um that you did, Susan, last year on period pain, mm. where you had collected women's stories, where their symptoms, essentially. You've been doing these questionnaires for 18 years or something. Yes, I've been, in my own practice, I've been developing a questionnaire for uh, many years that women fill in before they would come to see me with their pelvic pain things. And I looked at uh, 168 women who came along where period pain was one of their symptoms. And we asked them about 14 other symptoms that ranged from fatigue to headaches to vulval pain, pain with sex, food intolerance, mood disorders, nausea. And we found that of the women that came with period pain, the average was that they had eight extra symptoms. Now, our difficulty in healthcare is that nobody, no health professional, comes out of their training with the skills required to manage everything that that woman needs. There's a vast need for the big picture. Uh, this is one of the reasons why a lot of people just consider this group to be too hard to manage, because women come with symptoms that they don't feel skilled to manage. So there's lots to be done. 
uh, whether it's working in multidisciplinary clinics where you have people that handle the range of things that women need, of which we don't have enough, or if it's trying to broaden the skills of each person that that woman might come in contact with so that everybody does a bit more out of their comfort zones and fulfills more of that woman's needs. So how influential would you say is like women's own stories has been in, in your understanding of pelvic pain? Oh, well, I think because they're all individuals, that's what you have to listen to. And we've got a wonderful study going on at the moment where we're actually looking at pelvic pain language. We're actually, hundreds of women have written in and filled in our survey to write about their own experience, what their pain feels like, what it means to them, and associate it with different aspects of their pain. So we're trying to develop the language around this that will help both them and health professionals communicate better. And was that something that you found in this clinic, Hannah? Was the, the, was the language women were using kind of not understood by doctors and midwives? And, and to just pick up on Susan's really, I think, critical point, mm. it's treating women as individuals. Mm. And none of us on this panel have got the same interests and, and likes, but we, we all get on really well. Women are individuals and they have different needs and desires. And so, unfortunately, with, with mega systems like healthcare, you can end up with these sort of one size fits all and they, and they don't. So, women are asking for differences. They're asking to be listened to. They're saying, thank you very much for this evidence, um, but I'm making this choice. Now, I'm, a, I'm such an advocate for evidence-based practice as a professor of midwifery. I spend my life trying to find the best way to, and the best advice to give to women. But women also have the right to make a choice, and I, I, I get really, I get really sad that in 2019 we still have women saying, "Am I allowed? How do we get here? We're independent, strong, amazing women. We dominate in universities. We have the highest scores in education. We're out there, yet we still, when we walk into a health service to have a baby, will say things like, "Am I allowed?" and feel that we have no voice. So we need multiple different options for women. And we need to listen to that and we need to really make sure women know they have a voice and they have every legal right to make a decision about what happens to their bodies. Um, and so we know this affects women, but we also know that it affects Indigenous women and women of colour and minority backgrounds even more. Um, Megan, can you tell us how this plays out in Indigenous communities? Yes, yeah, certainly being overrepresented in a lot of the data that we've got available, but we've also got real gaps in data as well about what our Aboriginal women do experience. But I'm inherently strengths-based. You know, I, I only really like to look at the problems through the lens of solutions and really listening to the voices of our Aboriginal women uh, are absolutely crucial. And it's really how we do business in Indigenous affairs. We've got our Aboriginal community-controlled health organisations, and my elders tell me, my elders have raised me to absolutely look to the community and what local communities require and need and what particular population groups require and need and how they identify the types of solutions that are there to meet their needs. And it's through that that you then identify real nitty-gritty in issues that are affecting communities too. Issues are definitely multiple and compounding, and probably that complexity is what leads people to think that it's just too hard to, to deal with the problem mm. of Aboriginal Australia. But as you say, the local health organisations have been hugely successful in the communities they work they in. They have. They're not equitably funded. Mm. New South Wales Ministry of Health, for example, has a partnership agreement with our Aboriginal community-controlled health organisations to ensure that they're at the table and that they influence decisions and that they also are part of the solutions too. Mm. But when those services are grossly underfunded and are hammered with requests from mainstream organisations and researchers to meet their needs, it's difficult for us to actually be at the table. We've also got to remember that about half of our population of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are under 21. So we don't have the workforce yet. The burden arguably is on my generation where, you know, I'm in a very small cohort of people who've got a PhD, who have the research training to contribute to evidence-based practice. And for me, my research can only but be connected to 
community solutions because our ethical, our ethical guidelines require that. Our research must not be designed by researchers but by community and to involve community. So there's enormous pressure on, on us who do get a seat, you know, on a panel too. We've got to be planning ahead about how we can better understand our young Aboriginal women's issues through that, um, you know, the the sheer difficulty of questions, surveys, any of those medical interactions having been designed by men, by Anglo men often, and by males who are significantly older than our young Aboriginal women mean that we are left off the agenda or we are misunderstood and misrepresented, not to mention stereotyped. Mm. Mm. On that stereotype um, topic, I wrote about 27-year-old Aboriginal woman called Naomi Williams. She was six months pregnant and she went to a hospital emergency department in the ACT describing her pain as 10 out of 10. She was told to go home and take some Panadol and 24 hours later she was dead. She had septicema and when I wrote about that story, other women came forward, Aboriginal women and their families saying that the same thing had happened to them. So even when Aboriginal women are speaking up and they're getting help, they're not being heard or they're being dismissed. Um, Naomi Williams, her mum said to me she'd been to the hospital multiple times before her death and the doctors thought that she was a drug addict. She was a NAIDOC award-winning woman who um, had been recognised for her services to the community. So what more do Aboriginal women have to do to be heard and treated well in the health system? And um, there's now various inquests, coronial inquests, going on into the deaths of these women. Um, I, I actually sat in on the Naomi Williams inquest last year. It's finishing this week, actually. Mm. So it's a really good example because I think it, it encapsulates so many problems. It, it, it encapsulates the problem with small, how remote... Um, health services work. So she, Naomi had a long-term pain condition. So she had been going to the hospital in the six months before she went 19 times. And no one could see what her pain condition was. There, there wasn't the specialists available to diagnose her pain condition. So by the time she got to the hospital on the night she died, she was just considered a drug seeker. The nurses didn't even ring a doctor. No doctor saw her. They sent her home in less than half an hour. And I think she had meningococcal as well. Um, yes, she did. Yep. Um, but at that stage, they were like, oh, it's her again. Like, one of her, um, her best friend testified at the coronial inquest, and, and Naomi used to be so scared to go... She was terrified to go to the hospital. And once... She, so she used to try and bring a friend with her all the time. And once they got there and, and the um, triage nurse said, oh, it's you again. And so imagine trying to go back. When she got sicker and sicker in the morning, she didn't want to go back to the hospital because she'd already been sent home that night. So that, the, the problems, you know, just compound. And, and having a pain condition that isn't diagnosed it can really count against you. I think there are microaggressions too, like Naomi being released at 2.30am mm. in a small town. Mm. I mean, which professional proficient clinician or their team does that. Mm. Yeah, it was a, it's a very sad case. Will... Can I just raise another yeah. point? It was just actually in the news this morning. The UK has just looked at their maternal deaths as women dying in pregnancy and childbirth. And black women, and I know we're talking slightly different here, but black women have five times the rate of dying in the UK compared to white women. And the USA now is about number 30 in the world. Mm for the incredible rise in maternal deaths, and the majority of that is in black women, disadvantaged women, who are not having their needs met. So I think we have to, we have to listen to women. We have to also go through sometimes some really confronting understandings of ourselves and our assumptions, and we have to get this right. Mm. Isn't it incredible that in the space of about a year we've had two national apologies for not listening to women from the health minister, one in relation to transvaginal mesh mm. and the other one in relation to endometriosis? And that is a consequence of years and years and years of women telling their stories, and finally we're getting to a point where it's been recognised by our policymakers that 
this, these voices have been left out of research, out of education at schools, but we've only just got to this point now, and I just find that extraordinary, that a national apology for the way we're treated. Even the national apology around forced child removals, yeah. the 10-year yes. anniversary came within a really similar period of time that New South Wales government have passed new legislation to mean that any child in out-of-home care for two years mm. is permanently adopted and their families don't get a say in that. So with our mob being overrepresented, and part of my research with the New South Wales Child Development Study and our Najurina, which means to care for research, clearly shows an overrepresentation of our young people in, in out-of-home care. All of the risks that the international literature show for juvenile detention but with our linked data that we're looking, using and across generations, we're, we're seeing that mother's poor mental health is clearly implicated, which is circular too. To care for our mothers yeah. means caring across generations. Yeah. I'd like to comment, if I can, that um, I think that mental health of uh, young women and mothers is just absolutely crucial. And that gets back to, for many of them, pain conditions as teenagers. So this is a vastly unrecognised need. One in five of our uh, Australian girls, 16 to 18, is already missing some aspects of school because of severe period pain. Some of them have more complex pain and are leaving school. And this happens silently. It happens quietly. They miss a few days with pain. They get a bit behind. They start to miss more. And then they don't feel good about going to school. Then they may be stigmatised in some way. And then very quietly, with no one noticing, they just seem to drop out. And that, of course, implicates them for the rest of their lives. And the other thing is that um, pain conditions are associated with anxiety and depression, which, of course, sets you up very badly for being a mother, uh, caring for children, setting up your own family to be healthy and well, and for your ability to work, be employed, uh, support your, your, your parents, your spouse, yourself. So, to me, a large amount of the disadvantage is starting with pain in teens. Um, and Megan, I think some of your research showed that women, Aboriginal women in prison have very high um, pain and pain drugs, which leads to mental health conditions. That's yeah. right, yeah, similar to, yes. um, to earlier, um, around 70%, but your yeah, high numbers are medicated within prison. And, um, you know, I'd I guess I'd like to also uh, acknowledge the death of Miss Do. Mm. You know, Could you um, just explain that case to the audience? Yeah, everyone knows. a young Aboriginal woman in Port Hedland, you know, quite remote really, 1,500 kilometres from Perth, um, had picked up for, been picked up for unpaid fines and in that state it's um, mandated to incarcerate people for unpaid fines and so she'd already had multiple health issues and um, multiple contacts with the criminal justice system but essentially died from um, an infection in a rib and uh, the footage is uh, you know publicly available and it's absolutely revolting how she was treated not believed for her pain calling out for um, for assistance taken to the hospital twice on the third trip to the hospital um, you know, just didn't make it. And she was medicated with diazepam and then deemed fit for custody. It was a terribly sad case. So what have we learnt from Miss Dew? Well, we've had a death in custody here in New South Wales for the first time since we've had that, um, the custody notification system. Can you just quickly explain what the custody notification system is? Whenever an Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander person in this state comes in contact with the criminal justice system, uh, with the police, sorry, the, the Aboriginal legal service is to be notified. And they're, they're run off the smell of an oily rag. It's actually quite extreme conditions for that service. It's even uh, telephone-operated, paper-based none of the new technologies that we'd expect for that type of uh, surveillance or connecting kind of support for when our people come in contact with the criminal justice system. And, uh, and also, but obviously it's been very successful in this state too, to have really only had that one death mm. in that amount of time, you know, shows that. But that 
isn't the type of evidence government are translating into equitable funding. Mm, yeah, so where that's it's needed. A key sticking point, let alone to be sustained or growing and growing in terms of more staff to meet more demand or to grow to other jurisdictions to also have that type of service available. And is there a similar thing in healthcare where the Aboriginal health workers are notified when there's an Aboriginal patient? Um, that, that is supposed to occur. Um, I've had my own experience, you know, quite recently, just with a minor little accident. So I went to accident emergency, big public hospital, and my first engagement over that counter was, oh, you're not Aboriginal, are you? And so that person decided for, for me how I identify, and it meant that I didn't get the connection with the intermediary of the social worker or the Aboriginal health worker at that hospital. What if I had been the... Uh, I had experienced violence? What if I had have had a multiple, you know, string of barriers to accessing care and I'd finally fronted up for something that I really needed? and I was treated like that. Luckily, I'm a fairly empowered, resilient, educated person who studies the health system, who trains people in how to uh, ask if a person identifies or not mm -hmm. as Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander. But if I had those other disadvantages against me, that could have resulted in my death. Mm. And that's the other type of stereotyping, I'm fair and I'm not automatically identifiable, but our big population of Aboriginal young people in Western Sydney, many of them are fairer than me, and this is going to be an issue for our health system in the future, that we must not make that assumption about who's Aboriginal and who's not. So is there any research or any place where it is working well, where, where it's happening? Well, again, I'd say in Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander community-controlled health organisations, mm -hmm. but even at that, in a big, large um, service here. I've had to show my confirmation of Aboriginality certificate at that service, and I had to stand at the counter while my two referees were telephoned to verify my Aboriginality. I haven't had to do that for my English heritage, mind you, in this country, <laughs> anywhere. Um, but I think that was because that particular AMS was, is um, under such demand. It was also a six-hour wait. Wow. Mm. And that's not to be disparaging about that particular service, but that's to show when we can offer culturally sensitive mm. services with Aboriginal staff, Aboriginal people will go there yeah. and the numbers will, will be high. And our data does show that. Our National Aboriginal Community Controlled Health Organisation clearly shows Aboriginal people have high levels of access to those mm. services. Better follow-up care, more holistic care too, that it's not just the individual, but it might be the bub that comes along and Nan who's there as well can be seen at the same time not separated into separate um, appointments and that also we might have things attended to like you're talking about the context of pain too not just that physical pain but how it might play out emotionally uh, we might get referred to the social emotional well-being team or there might be dental pain that's secondary to other pains, so we might be referred to the dentist or within that service. And again, that's that multidisciplinary care that's timely. So really those Aboriginal health workers at those services, like at hospitals, are a connector. And connection is a, it, it might sound different, but it's a spiritual principle of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. You know, we're told that our health and we understand our health to very importantly have that spiritual dimension. And one of the things that I've really thoroughly enjoyed researching over the years is how Aboriginal people enliven and enact spirituality in practice in healthcare. And it's through this principle of connecting to just in practice, you, you require more support. Who can I connect you to and how? So to have people whose roles are as connectors uh, is vital. And that's the Aboriginal health worker role in essence. Mm. But it's also uh, a health workforce whose numbers are declining. And it's very political 
role too because it doesn't fit the mainstream understanding of a, a cl clinical mental health care provider, doesn't come under this type of accreditation, doesn't fit neatly in this box. And also it's been, uh, prof it's a recognised profession in many jurisdictions, but it's been um, paid around the same as the gardeners of the hospitals mm -hmm. too. Mm -hmm. So you don't have a lot of our young deadly mob who are getting into uni going, I want to be a health worker right? too. Um, but it, to me, that is just an absolutely magic workforce that we could better understand in order to promote. And really, which culture does that not apply to, to have a connector? Mm -hmm. Like a case manager is another type of language about that or... Um, I think it's really interesting to this, this connection between mental health and pain, which I'd like to come back to. But first, I just want to go to Mel. Um, you've done a lot of reporting. You mentioned vaginal mesh earlier, um, and I think that encapsulates a lot of what we've been talking about. But you also did an investigation last year where into a gynaecologist who had been performing unnecessary procedures on women and left them with severe pain and infection. Can you just tell us what happened when these women complained? Yeah, so just for a bit of background um, for people who might not know about this case, uh, I started investigating a doctor called Emil Shockey gayed and he's a gynaecologist and he worked mostly in regional and remote towns but spent most of his time in Taree. And... I found out that he was needlessly removing women's reproductive organs without their informed consent for conditions that could have been treated with bed rest. And he did this over the course of two decades. And so the question is, how does that happen? And I spoke to so many women, um, but thankfully I, I have an editor who immediately, once I was telling her about this story, Lenore Taylor, she said, you need to go to Taree. And so that's where this doctor worked for, for most of his career. And so I went to Taree with our photographer, Carly Earl, and word got around the town that I was there investigating this doctor, and suddenly my phone was ringing off the hook. So many women were coming forward. Carly and I couldn't book them all in for interviews and photographs, and they were showing us medical documents, they were showing us scans, they were showing us complaints they'd written, and they'd just not been taken seriously. And... So I kept digging and digging and digging and went to various um, regulators and asked about complaints about this man. And it became evident to me that people knew and he was moved around from hospital to hospital to hospital. And what I learned from that is that these organisations, these regulators, these hospitals are operating in silos and they're not information sharing. Now, after cases like... Patel and Graham Reeves, the fact that that could still happen was shocking to me. The other thing is, is that these women did complain. They were left suffering with horrendous infections after being treated by this doctor. Um, they were no longer able to have children. One woman had her vagina stitched shut. She couldn't have sex anymore. And these women were saying things to me like, um, I just thought I wasn't very good at pregnancy. Or I went to the law firm to complain, but they said they wouldn't take on this case because we don't touch people in our own town. These are small towns. Um, so they did speak up. They did complain. They didn't stay silent. And what they got was ignored. And the consequence is, is that this guy harmed hundreds of women. I've been told that the health districts where he worked set up hotlines for women to call if they'd been harmed by this doctor after our story came out in The Guardian. And they've received several hundred calls from women. Gail Furness led an investigation into the health system as a result of our reporting, and she had to keep extending her deadline because more women kept coming forward. Their pain was ignored. Their stories were ignored. And I used to have a very kind of um, anti-alternative medicine um, approach. I still do. I'm very evidence-based in my medical reporting. I went on and studied a bit of epidemiology and biostatistics to make sure I get my medical reporting right. But so many of these women, after being ignored by the health system, they've gone to chiropractors now, they've gone to naturopaths, and I kind of had to get over my attitude because how can we blame them? How can we blame them from turning away from the health system? And... That's what's going to happen 
if we don't listen to women and if we don't address their pain, and if in the cases like transvaginal mesh and dodgy gynaecologists and endometriosis, we are leaving women with permanent pain that they are living with for the rest of their lives, sometimes requiring multiple surgeries, can we blame them from turning away from con conventional evidence-based medicine and trying something else? And that's the other risk we run. So um, I learned a lot about the experiences of women through doing that particular investigation, but also just through medical reporting generally. And um, it is such a privilege to hear those stories and to report them well, to speak to experts like the women on this panel about how we can do better, because um, for a long time, we just weren't even talking about this. Mm. Mm. I think, Hannah, you said what part of your research is looking how to bring women back, the women we've lost. How, how do we bring them back? Did yeah. you get, have find any... Yes, and there's a fantastic program happening in the MARTA right now, which is basically sits down with women who want to make other choices. Um, at the MARTA in Brisbane. In Brisbane, sorry. Yes. Mm. There, are, there are MARTAs everywhere. Yes. Mm. Um, and they sit down with a team, and they, they're very clear. They have the evidence. They know what the recommendation is. And then they support that choice. And, it, and what that does is stopping women being driven out to having home births with doulas and birth workers or completely nobody there. So it is far better that those women are within our system than we alienate them. Can I make a comment also on Please do. the issue that Mel wrote? And this is really a personal experience. When I, when I was 21, now that's a many, many, many years ago, many I say. It's more than 30 years ago. Do the math. Um, I was a student nurse um, at, a, at a hospital in the New South Wales I won't name it. And I was doing a maternity um, stint for a few weeks so that I could actually get to the UK and study midwifery. And when I was in there, a senior midwife came to me, I went to the birth unit that day, and said to me, you're going in that room, but there is a doctor in there that I want you to be very careful of. Do not, do not get alone with them and give them no reason to come close to you. And I went into the room, and I must say that, you know, the, I, I just want to add, I work with the most stunning doctors, so it's really important we don't demonise doctors. There are some really dangerous nurses and midwives out there too. <laughs> Let's not, you know, I'm, I'm mindful of Susan sitting here. <laughs> but this, this man was particularly predatory, and he then pushed me up against the bed, and everybody said, well, you know, we told you that, and off he went. And I never questioned it. Do you know who that man was? Graham Reeves. Mm. 20 years later, I saw the butcher from Bega being exposed. This man had started small, and everyone had excused his behaviour, including me, because those senior people around me said, just keep out of the way, that's the way he is. He went on to get more and more dangerous till he escalated to the point of whispering to women as they went under, under anaesthetic, I'm going to cut your clitoris off, and then he did it. Now, we all know there is something very wrong with humans like that, but what I actually want to make the point of is systems allow humans like that to get away with a 30-year career of damaging women. Because nobody... It should have been addressed way back mm. here. Who was in the operating theatre handing the instruments mm. when this happened? Who saw this? Who didn't say anything? I know of a couple of midwives who did blow the whistle on him, and let me tell you, they were hammered over it. Do you know who did speak up in the case of Gayette? It was midwives, it was nurses, it was women in the admin who were warning each other and going to senior managers. And it was those senior managers who were failing to act. And so you have these women warning each other. And... But not protecting not the protecting. women. Not protecting. Yeah. Mm. And, and this is what Me Too is all about, isn't it? But, mm. but senior clinicians, they have the power. And I'm sorry, I don't care about protecting your own career. If you have that power to report someone and to stop this harm from happening, you have an obligation as a doctor. There are brilliant doctors out there. Like, you know, we have to keep have paying. One. Can, I say, can I say something? I think the ability for clinicians to actually alter our health system is dramatically diminished over the last few years. Because um, I know many people over a whole range of people working in healthcare who see things that are not right and go to their health administrators and say, look, there are things happening here that are not right and they are ignored. The ability for a lot of health practitioners' system, including doctors, including nurses, to actually get these things listened to is 
dramatically diminishing as healthcare becomes a bureaucratically run mm. thing mm. in hospitals. The people actually seeing and caring for the patients are ignored. They are considered to be technicians who just, we pay you to do this and we're not listening. And how so, do we fix that, Susan? Well, I don't know. But that's what's happening. You know, mm. I remember over many years there were many people in lots of areas where if you were working at the, you know, caring for people, that you had some input into how that care might play out. Mm. And if you had people you worked with, you had some ability to change things. These days, people that are bad do not lose their jobs. Yes. Whether they are clerks on the desk who are rude, whether they are triage nurses, whether they're um, uh, doctors, surgeons, uh, physios, whatever. In our public health system, people who are rude or bad do not lose their jobs. And it's very hard for patients to know which doctors or nurses or health professionals have disciplinary action That's right. underway. And it's, it's very distressing for those that are in the health system doing their best to do a good job to realise how powerless they are to actually call out bad things or make change. It's very distressing. Mm. One of the things I'd like to see in the future is m more Aboriginal people in that at the decision-making level in health administration. And, and our, our top public servant, Professor Ian Anderson, just this week indicated that there are only 25 executive-level Aboriginal people uh, to influence decision-making within health administration. You know, that's not population <laughs> parity, and I bet you there's no gender equity within that either. Yeah. Um, just you talked about the Brisbane Martyr, and I know, Susan, you've worked with the Martyr yes. in Brisbane too. There must be something about the Martyr. Yeah. There must be something about the Martyr. <laughs> but the Martyr, you know, they there's some really fabulous people working in pelvic pain there, and they have overhauled their the way that pelvic pain is managed in the emergency department just to really look at how it can be done better, to be something that listens to women more, manages their pain better, uh, gets things sorted out for them. So there's actually an article that I've been part of that's going to be published soon about all the things that they've done to make the emergency department of the woman at the Mater a more welcoming, effective place for women that come with pain. And it'll be used, hopefully, as a model for other hospitals to, to consider. And... Uh, you know, I think that uh, what we've heard and what we all know is that the situation for women with pain is pretty dire. But there's a, got a lot of goodwill out there and there are some good things happening. They're a drop in the ocean and they need more, but there are good things happening. The ink is barely dry on our wonderful new schools program, which is going to help young girls, uh, probably around year 10 at school, to recognise when they have a pain condition, to help them understand it, to look at the early things that they can do to minimise their pain and to help them make good choices and recognise good options later on. And uh, it's been with a lucky recipients of a federal and state grant for this. And yes, should it be in every state? Absolutely. But we're working on South Australia this year and it's part of the National Action Plan for Endometriosis and it's hopefully the beginning of a better future for young women in this area that's just so important. Um, I think it's really important to, to finish on a high note. I, when I started my book, when I started researching endometriosis in 2015, I felt really angry. But over the course of this last year, I've, I've um, interviewed the most amazing people and there is real hope out there. Like, things are changing. It's slow and we have to keep fighting. But it's there's glimmers of hope. So I want to finish on a really positive note. So I'm going to go around to the panel and if you can give the audience one bit of advice or tell us something positive that you've seen happening. Um, Mel, do you want to start? Well, one of the positive things is having the platform and the, the space to investigate these things, to write about them and talk about them. The fact that we're openly talking in offices and among our friends about period pain and um, how to get better healthcare, I think is such a positive thing. Susan's already mentioned schools. I mean, when I went to school, I don't remember being taught about um, managing pelvic pain or period pain. So um, I didn't even get taught the word vulva. I mean, no. <laughs> exactly. That's right. And in fact, we we're, we're starting from, from a low base. Low base. <laughs> we're, taught from, <laughs> we're taught from a very young age as girls to push through. You know, you've got mm. your period, you're in a lot of pain, push through. And um, it's so positive that that's changing now. Mm. Megan? 
For me, definitely more voices of Aboriginal young women um, and, you know, opportunities like this are fantastic. We uh, often use an apprenticing kind of system, so we've got to bring that next generation with us. We serve the older generation, but we must bring that. We're not just an individual operating, you know, for, for what we need. I've talked about Aboriginal community control, investing in that, and governments upholding their frameworks, their policies and their strategies together with Aboriginal community control and privileging that. But also, I love the idea of social journalism. I'm one of the commissioning editors for croaky.org. I heartily follow and adore Indigenous X. So those are some of the ways, you know, thinking about in 20 years' time how we do bring the younger generation with us, then the use of um, digital technologies and new media is absolutely where I'd start investing. Mm. Fantastic. Hannah? Well, look, we've got an entire day in one of the most iconic buildings in the country devoted to all about women. So I think that's wonderful. Now we need 365 days or 364 <laughs> more. And, you know, uh, I'm, I, I'm a great advocate for, for men and, and my husband is, I always say, more of a feminist than I am. Um, but what really inspires me is my daughters as well. So I have a 14-year-old and a 21-year-old. 20, 20, my 14-year-old got in the car the other day and was going to pick up a friend and their father. And my husband said, do you mind sitting in the back and I'll have the bloke in the front? Well, did he live to regret that? <laughs> Dad, this is 2019. What do you think you are doing asking me to go to the back seat? And I thought, precocious maybe. <laughs> but isn't it great? She feels she has a voice. So... I'm, I'm excited when I look at my daughters, but what I would say to, to women everywhere is the word allowed should be banned. You are allowed, you are able to make choices, your bodies are your own, your pain is your own, your experiences are your own, and if it doesn't feel right, question it and keep questioning it, because that's the only way we'll change the system. If we're collectively silent, it will never, ever change. And Susan? Well, before I came here, just yesterday, I came from the uh, conference of the gynaecologists in Australia that look after women with pelvic pain, you know, the surgeons that will see people and operate on them. And there was such a buzz of youth, passion and excitement. By youth, I mean, well, they have to be a bit old to have qualified, but, but anyway. <laughs> and, and, you know, pain was a big focus of the meeting uh, lots of ways of looking at how we can possibly develop new options for women with pain. It was a big focus. The invited guest speaker from the United States was a uh, Muslim woman, complete with headscarf and stuff. She was the invited guest speaker to talk about pain. And I felt so much optimism. I've been with that group for a long time and the optimism in that whole area for looking for new things and looking for ways to do better was just such a pleasure. So we really are starting from a very low base, very low base, and we can't let up our work to keep this momentum and to keep women's pain at the forefront. But there's a lot of good people out there and, and that gives me pleasure every day. Mm. Yes, yeah, so I hope that we've made you angry enough. <laughs> to fight, but hopeful enough to keep fighting. Um, thank you all for coming and listening to us today and I hope you enjoy the rest of the day.